Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 383 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Ariel 4, Prospero X-3, Shinsi, Isis 2, and it's our ninth anniversary. We have a bunch of satellites to talk about today, and each of them was unique in its own way, and all of them were launched in 1971. First of all, we have Ariel 4. The UK, United Kingdom Research Satellite 4, also known as Ariel 4, was a small observatory designed to investigate the interaction between electromagnetic waves, plasmas, and energetic particles present in the upper ionosphere. It was operated by the Science and Engineering Research Council. Ariel 4 leveraged both the design and hardware of Ariel 3 to reduce cost. Ariel 4 used pieces of its predecessor's flight backup unit and spare parts. The satellite only cost about 1.25 million pounds. It was the first satellite of the aerial program to have a mission-oriented payload. This is the case when all of the experiments were designed to research one scientific objective. The scientific objective was to study the interaction between high-energy charged particles and electromagnetic radiation in the upper ionosphere and magnetosphere. Three of the five experiments on Ariel 3 were to determine a single scientific objective, so those three were improved for use on Ariel 4 and an additional experiment was added. Experiments included observation of radio noise, electron density, and temperature, very low frequency and extremely low frequency propagation. 
very low frequency impulses, and characteristics of low energy charged particles. The experiments accounted for 18.5 kilograms of the spacecraft's mass. It was also the first in the program to carry an American experiment. British Aircraft Corporation was the prime contractor to build Ariel 4. Ariel 4 had a launch mass of 101 kilograms. It was the first satellite in the Ariel program to be able to perform attitude maneuvers. Now I have a description of Ariel 4's appearance. There is a picture on the homepage as well. The satellite structure was similar to that of previous UK satellites, with four paddles extending out and downward from the base of the main satellite body. These paddles served as solar power cell mountings and as mounting for experiments. The satellite was a right cylinder attached to a right conical structure with solar cells placed on the cylindrical surface. The satellite was spin-stabilized with an attitude control system that maintained the spacecraft's spin axis within 5 degrees of parallel alignment with the geomagnetic axis. The carrier rocket for Ariel 4 was the Scout B-1, a very interesting rocket. The Scout family of rockets were American launch vehicles designed to place small satellites into orbit around the Earth. The Scout multi-stage rocket was the first orbital launch vehicle to be entirely composed of four solid fuel stages. It was also the only launch vehicle of that type until the successful launch of the Japanese Lambda 4S in 1970. The original Scout, which stands for Solid Controlled Orbital Utility Test System, was designed in 1957 at the NACA at Langley Center. Scout launch vehicles were used from 1961 until 1994. To enhance reliability, the development team opted to use off-the-shelf hardware originally produced for military programs. The standard Scout launch vehicle was a solid propellant four-stage booster system approximately 75 feet in length with a weight of 47,400 pounds. The first stage was a combination of a Jupiter Senior and the Navy Polaris it was called Algol. It had a thrust capacity of 564,000 newtons. The diameter was 1 meter and the length was 9 meters. The second stage came from the Army, an MGM-29 Sergeant. It was called Castor. The thrust capability 258 1,000 newtons. The diameter was 0.79 meters and its length was 6 meters. 
The third and fourth stage motors were designed by Langley engineers who adapted a version of the Navy Vanguard. The third stage was called Antares, and it had a thrust capacity of 93 kilonewtons, diameter of 0.78 meters, and a length of 2.9 meters. The fourth stage was called Altair, with a thrust capacity of 22 kilonewtons, diameter of 0.64 meters, and a length of 2.53 meters. Aerial 4 was launched December 11, 1971, from Launch Complex 5 at Vandenberg Air Force Base. The launch was conducted by NASA. Aerial 4 was successfully placed into a low-Earth orbit with a perigee of 473 kilometers, an apogee of 590 kilometers, and at a 82.9 degree inclination, and an orbital period took 95.3 minutes. With the particle experiment mounted on the apex of the cone, it looked at the northern geomagnetic pole. Tape recorded data of global coverage was of low resolution, while the real-time observations taken within telemetry range of readout stations were of high resolution. The satellite had a design lifetime of one year, and the mission was considered successful. Aerial 4 decayed from orbit on December 12, 1978. Okay, let's move on to Prospero X-3. The Prospero satellite, also known as the X-3, was launched by the United Kingdom in 1971. Prospero was the first British satellite launched successfully by a British rocket. However, it was not the first British satellite placed in orbit. That was Ariel 1 launched in April of 1962 on a U.S. carrier rocket. Prospero was built by the Royal Aircraft Establishment in Farnborough, initially called Puck. It had an external shape similar to a pumpkin with an equatorial diameter of 1.2 meters and a height of 0.7 meters. It was designed to conduct experiments to test the technologies necessary for communication satellites. Two experimental solar cells setups were tested. One was a test of a lightweight cell and mounting. The other was an attempt to replace the standard fused silica cover of solar cells with a cerium oxide-based cover. Designs for telemetry and power systems were also tested. Additionally, it carried a micrometeoroid detector to measure the presence of very small particles. The detector worked on the principle of impact ionization. When the UK Ministry of Defense canceled the Black Arrow program, the development team decided to continue with the project but renamed the satellite Prospero. 
when it was announced it would be the last launch attempt using a British rocket. An earlier Black Arrow launch carrying the Orba X-2 satellite had failed to achieve orbit after a premature second stage shutdown. As I mentioned, the British Black Arrow was the carrier rocket. Developed during the 1960s, it was used for four launches between 1969 and 1971. All launched from the Woomera prohibited area in Australia. Its final flight was the first and only successful orbital launch to be conducted by the UK and placed the Prospero satellite into low Earth orbit. Black Arrow originated from a Royal Aircraft Establishment proposal for a rocket capable of placing a 317-pound payload into low Earth orbit in order to test the systems designed for larger spacecraft. In the autumn of 1964, the program was authorized by Conservative Aviation Minister Julian Emery. Then, following a general election in October, the incoming Labor government put the project on hold to reduce expenditure. Following another election, the government approved the continuation of the program with several modifications, including the reduction of the test program from five to three launches. The maiden launch was set for 1968. Most of the technology and systems used on Black Arrow had already been developed or flight-proven on the Black Knight rocket, or the Blue Steel missile. Black Arrow was designed to reuse as much technology from the earlier programs as possible in order to reduce costs and simplify the development process. Many senior staff of the Black Knight program transferred directly to Black Arrow, including the chief missile scientist Roy Domit, the chief design engineer Ray Wheeler, and the deputy chief engineer John Underwood. Initial development was conducted by Saunders Road, which merged into Westland Aircraft in 1964. Westland was subsequently the prime contractor for the Black Arrow and assembled the first and second stages at East Cowles on the Isle of Wight. Bristol Siddeley produced the first and second stage engines at a factory in Ansi, Warwickshire. The engines were test-fired at the factory before being shipped to the Isle of Wight where they were integrated into the rocket and the first stage engines were fired again at high down. Bristol Aerojet produced the third stage in Somerset, while the Explosive Research and Development Establishment produced its solid propellant in Waltham Abbey, Essex. The Rocket Propulsion Establishment, based in Westcott, Buckinghamshire, was responsible for the design and integration of the stage. The name Black Arrow came from the Ministry of Supply Policy of assigning designations consisting of color and a noun, unofficially known as rainbow codes, to research programs conducted by the armed forces. 
The first and second stages of the Black Arrow were fueled by RP-1 paraffin, burnt using high-test peroxide as an oxidizer. Due to the optimum mixture ratio being about 7, a larger oxidizer tank was required compared to many contemporary launch systems. The oxidizer tanks were located below the fuel tanks, following the practice of putting the more dense propellant at the top in order to move the center of gravity higher and make the rocket more stable when in flight, and thus easier to control. This arrangement had been pioneered by Germany and the United States, whereas the Soviet Union had placed oxidizer tanks above fuel tanks, making it easier for the lower tanks to be filled first. Thrust vectoring was used to provide attitude control on the first two stages. The eight first-stage combustion chambers were arranged in pairs which could gimbal either way along one axis. Two of the pairs were arranged perpendicular to the other two, and when all four pairs were used together, they provided roll, pitch, and yaw control. The second stage had two combustion chambers, which could gimbal along two axes, providing the same level of control. During a coast phase after second stage cutoff, the rocket was controlled by a reaction control system. The third stage did not have an attitude control system and was instead spin-stabilized. The first stage was powered by a single Gamma-8 engine, which burned for 127 seconds. The Gamma-8 was an eight-chamber engine derived from the Gamma-301 engine used on the Black Knight. It was 6.9 meters long and had a diameter of 2 meters, the same diameter as the French Coralie. Coralie was used as the second stage of the Europa rocket, and the decision to give Black Arrow the same diameter as Coralie was taken in order to make it compatible with Blue Streak, which was used as the first stage of Europa. This would have allowed Black Arrow's payload capacity to have been increased and would also have allowed Britain to use the first stage of Black Arrow as a backup to the Coralie. For this reason, all dimensions in the original specifications were given in imperial units, except for the first stage diameter, which was given in meters. The first and second stages were connected by an interstage structure containing four Siskin 1B separation and ullage motors which separated and ignited seven seconds after the first stage had cut off. The interstage separated from the second stage six seconds later. The second stage, which was 2.9 meters long and measured 1.37 meters in diameter, was powered by a two-chamber Gamma-2 engine, which ignited shortly after the separation motors and continued to burn for 123 seconds. Three minutes after launch during the second stage burn, the payload fairing separated. 
About 257 seconds into the flight, the second stage cut off and the rocket entered a coast phase to apogee. Immediately after cutoff, the second stage attitude control system was pressurized. During the coast, the correct orientation for third stage separation was maintained by means of the attitude control system. Towards the end of the coast period, the third stage was spun up to a rate of 3 hertz by means of 6 imp rockets. Five seconds later, the third stage separated, and following ten more seconds of coasting, it ignited. The third stage was a wax-wing solid rocket motor, which burned for 55 seconds. Just over a minute after the third stage had burned out, the payload was released, and gas generators were used to push the spacecraft and the spent upper stage apart. The delay between burnout and separation was intended to reduce the risk of recontact between the upper stage and payload due to residual thrust. On the Black Arrow launch, the ascent took 710 seconds from liftoff to spacecraft separation. Prospero was launched on October 28, 1971 from Launch Area 5B at Woomera, South Australia, making Britain the sixth nation to place a satellite into orbit using a domestically developed carrier rocket. The Black Arrow's final stage, Waxwing rocket, also entered orbit, rather too enthusiastically, as it continued to thrust after separation and collided with Prospero detaching one of the satellite's four radio antenna. The satellite was operated by RAE Lasham. For the satellite's early orbits, additional reporting was provided by the European Space Research Organization's S-Tract system. In regular operation, real-time data support was provided by a Science Research Council station at Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands. The results of the mission were the lightweight solar cell design was found to be successful. The cerium oxide cover was not, with the solar cell using it showing an increased rate of degradation. Prospero's tape recorders stopped working in 1973. Prospero was officially deactivated in 1996 when the UK's Defence Research Establishment decommissioned their satellite tracking station at Lasham, Hampshire. But the satellite had been turned on in past years on its anniversary. It is in a low Earth orbit and is not expected to decay until about 2070, almost 100 years after its launch. In September 2011, a team of University College London's Mullard Space Center Laboratory announced plans to re-establish communications with Prospero in time for the satellite's 40th anniversary. As of September 2012, not much progress had been made in establishing contact with the satellite due to time constraints. At perigee, Prospero can be seen, though, 
through binoculars at a magnitude plus six overhead. Steady. A plan to retrieve Prospero and return it to Earth for a museum display is currently being developed by Skyrora and other UK companies. A second satellite was built as a flight spare, but was not needed after the successful launch of the Prospero satellite. It has been donated to the Science Museum in London. Shinzi is the Japanese word for new star. It is also the name of the first Japanese scientific satellite. The Shinzi satellite weighed 66 kilograms or 145 pounds. Shinzi had a 26-sided body measuring 71.2 centimeters in diameter across the flat sides. Scientific payload included solar radio receivers, cosmic ray detectors, and ionospheric probes. The power supply system consisted of solar cells and nickel-cadmium batteries. The launch vehicle was a solid-fueled Mu-4S rocket. The Mu, also known as M, was a series of Japanese solid-fueled carrier rockets which were launched from Uchinora between 1966 and 2006. Originally developed by Japan's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, Mu rockets were later operated by Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency following the Institute of Space and Astronautical Science becoming part of it. The first Mu rocket, the Mu-1, made a single suborbital test flight on October 31, 1966. Subsequently, a series of rockets were produced, designated Mu-3 and Mu-4, in 1969, a suborbital test launch of Mu-3D was conducted, the first orbital launch attempt for the Mu family. Using a Mu-4S was conducted on September 25, 1970. However, the fourth stage did not ignite and the rocket failed to reach orbit. On February 1971, Tansy-1 was launched by another Mu-4S rocket. Two further Mu-4S launches took place during 1971 and 72. 
The four-stage Mu-4S had a length of 23.6 meters, a diameter of 1.4 meters, and a payload capacity of 180 kilograms. Shinsei was launched from the Uchinora Space Center, Japan, on September 28, 1971, under the authority of the Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, which was then part of the University of Tokyo. Shinsei observed solar radio emissions, cosmic rays, and plasmas in Earth's ionosphere. All experiments operated nominally after launch, except for the electron temperature probe, which was damaged on separation, and one Geiger tube that failed after three days of operation. Otherwise, good data was received for four months until tape recorder failure. Only a limited amount of real-time data was subsequently obtained. By late 1973, the experimental equipment had become no longer useful for meaningful scientific observation. But Shinsei still remains in orbit. Let's move on to the International Satellites for Ionospheric Studies, or ISIS. ISIS 1 and 2 were the third and fourth in a series of Canadian satellites launched to study the ionosphere over one complete solar cycle. After the success of Canada's Alouette 1, Canada and the U.S. jointly sent up three more satellites in the ISIS program. The first was named Alouette 2, originally being named ISIS-X. As was the case for the Alouette satellites, RCA Limited of Montreal was the prime contractor for both ISIS-1 and 2. ISIS-1 was launched on January 30, 1969 by a Delta rocket at the Western Test Range of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Unlike the Alouette satellites, the ISIS-1 had complex navigational equipment and a tape recorder 
to record some experiments when they were out of communications range and play back the results when the satellite came over Canada again. Some other experiments were not recorded, but data was sent in over several stations around the globe. In total, it conducted 10 experiments. Now let's move on to ISIS-2. Due to budget constraints, the design of ISIS-2 was largely similar to that of ISIS-1. ISIS-2 was also an ionospheric observatory instrumented with a sweep and a fixed frequency ionosond, a VLF receiver, which is very low frequency, an energetic and soft particle detector, an ion mass spectrometer, an electrostatic probe, a retarding potential analyzer, a beacon transmitter, a cosmic noise experiment, and two photometers. Two long cross dipole antennas, 73 meters and 18.7 meters, were used for the sounding, very low frequency and cosmic noise experiments. The photometers allowed images to be taken for the first time of an aurora borealis as seen from above. The experiment package also included a programmable tape recorder with a one-hour capacity for non-recorded observations, data from satellite and sub-satellite regions were telemetered when the spacecraft was in the line of sight of a telemetry station. The appearance of the satellite was similar to two multi-sided cones with the tops connected together. There is a photo on the homepage. The satellite's mass was 264 kilograms. The carrier rocket for both ISIS-1 and 2 was the Delta-E-1. Delta is an American versatile family of expendable launch vehicles that has provided space launch capacity for the United States since 1960. More than 300 Delta rockets have been launched with a 95% success rate. Only the Delta IV Heavy rocket remains in use as of November 2020. Delta rockets are currently manufactured and launched by the United Launch Alliance. The original Delta rockets used a modified version of the PGM-17 Thor as their first stage. The Thor had been designed in the mid-1950s to reach Moscow from bases in Britain or similar allied nations, and the first wholly successful Thor launch had occurred in September 1957. Subsequent satellite and space probe flights soon followed using a Thor first stage with several different upper stages. The fourth upper stage used on the Thor was the Thor Delta, Delta being the fourth letter of the Greek alphabet. Eventually, the entire Thor Delta launch vehicle came to be known simply as Delta. NASA intended Delta as an interim general purpose vehicle to be used for communications, meteorological, and scientific satellites, and 
lunar probes during 1960 and 61. The plan was to replace the Delta with other rocket designs when they came online. From this point onward, the launch vehicle family was split into civilian variants flown from Cape Canaveral, which bore the Delta name, and military variants flown from Vandenberg Air Force Base, which used the more warlike Thor name. The Delta design emphasized reliability rather than performance by replacing components which had caused problems on earlier Thor flights. In particular, the trouble-prone inertial guidance package made by AC spark plug was replaced by a radio ground guidance system which was mounted to the second stage instead of the first. NASA made the original Delta contract to the Douglas Aircraft Company in April 1959 for 12 vehicles of this design. Stage 1 was the modified Thor with a Block 1 MB3 engine producing 683 kilonewtons of thrust with liquid oxygen RP-1 turbopump gimbal-mounted engine and two veneers for roll control. The second stage was a modified ABLE, pressure-fed, UDMH nitric acid-powered Aerojet AJ-10-118 engine producing 34 kilonewtons of thrust. This reliable engine cost $4 million U.S. dollars to build and is still flying in modified form today. Stage 3 was an Altair, spin-stabilized at 100 RPM by two solid rocket motors before separation. One ABL X248 solid rocket motor provided 12 kilonewtons of thrust for 28 seconds. The stage weighed 230 kilograms and was largely constructed of wound fiberglass. These vehicles would be able to place 290 kilograms into a 240 to 370 kilometer low earth orbit or put 45 kilograms into geostationary orbit. Eleven of the twelve initial Delta flights were successful and until 1968 no failures occurred in the first two minutes of launch. The high degree of success achieved by Delta stood in contrast to the endless parade of failures that dogged West Coast Thor launches. The version of Delta used for ISIS was the Delta E-1 or Thor Delta E-1. The first stage was a Thor missile in the DSV-2C configuration and the second stage was the Delta E, which was derived from the earlier Delta A. Three Castor-1 solid rocket boosters were clustered around the first stage. Two different solid fuel upper stages were available. An Altair II was used on the baseline version, but the E1 version used by ISIS was a FW-4D to increase performance. 
Delta E rockets were launched from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station Launch Complex 17 and Vandenberg Air Force Base Space Launch Complex 2E. All 23 flights were successful. ISIS-2 was launched from Vandenberg on April 1, 1971. The spacecraft successfully reached orbit and was spin-stabilized to about 2 RPMs after antenna deployment. There were two basic orientation modes for the spacecraft, cartwheel and orbit-aligned. The spacecraft operated approximately the same length of time in each mode, remaining in one mode typically three to five months. The cartwheel mode with the axis perpendicular to the orbit plane was made available to provide RAM and wake data for some experiments for each spin period, rather than for each orbit period. Attitude and spin information was obtained from a three-axis magnetometer and a sun sensor. Control of attitude and spin was possible by means of magnetic torquing. Telemetry stations were located so that primary data coverage was near the 80 degrees west meridian and near Hawaii, Singapore, Australia, England, France, Norway, India, Japan, Antarctica, New Zealand, and Central Africa. NASA support of the ISIS project was terminated on October 1, 1979. A significant amount of experimental data, however, was acquired after this date by the Canadian project team. ISIS-2 operations were terminated in Canada on March 9, 1984. The Radio Research Laboratories in Tokyo, Japan, then requested and received permission to reactivate ISIS-2. Regular ISIS-2 operations were started from Kashima, Japan in early August 1984. ISIS-2 was deactivated effective January 24, 1990 due to deterioration of battery capacity. A data restoration effort began in the late 90s and successfully saved a considerable portion of the high-resolution data before the telemetry tapes were discarded. from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 383 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Aerial 4 Prospero X3 Shinsei, Isis 2 and our ninth anniversary. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. 
The 2022 donors page is up to date, so please go by the website to make sure your name is there at the correct level with the correct longevity emoji. If it's not, email me at spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Two quick reminders. If you need to contact me, use the new email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Don't use the old one because it won't work. And two, if you would like to donate by mail, which is great for me, please use my new permanent address, which has been active for about six months. If you don't know what that is, please email me and I will give it to you. Our next episode should appear by March 10th. If you're looking for old episodes, the first 204 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you're using Google Podcasts, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast, Space Rocket History Archive, or the search engine won't find it. Google made some changes. Who knows why? And, by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. Had just a few afterthoughts. I want to apologize for my mispronunciation of English, Australian, Canadian, and Japanese words and places. Well, this completes everything I'm going to cover in 1971. I try to cover, as you know, all these significant manned and unmanned missions each year. Next time, it's 1972. I've already covered the manned missions, but there were several significant unmanned missions that need to be covered. Then, it's on to what most of you are waiting for. 1973 and that thing they did in the sky. I think you know what I'm talking about. So, if some of these unmanned missions are not your cup of tea, just hang on. It's coming soon. And if it is your cup of tea, please enjoy them to the utmost. As you may have noticed, it's not so easy to find clips and information on these lesser-known missions, especially the Japanese Shinsei. But I really find those uh, carrier rockets interesting, too. That Scout and the MU-4S on the Shinsei were four-stage solid rocket engines. And they uh, impressed me in the simplicity of it all. But it makes me wonder, knowing how it, it, I've read about how it felt on the shuttle, do you think those rockets shook pretty bad when they were lit? Those solid rockets? Anyway, we need to keep moving. I do have some big house news to share with you later, so let's keep going. It was our ninth anniversary of the podcast on February 13th, and I thought we would have a little celebration. Most podcasts don't make it to nine years, and I certainly didn't think this one would. But thanks in large part to the donors and the listeners. We did. So this is really our celebration of nine years and 383 episodes. 
Honestly, we have been so busy with the farm and the house that I didn't have time to do what I originally planned. So I thought we would do something simple that most people enjoy and we haven't done in a while. The good old Tang Ceremony. So, if you would like to celebrate with us, press pause and go get your tang. We'll wait here for you. Okay, Mrs. SRH has joined us now. Is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners? Yes, hello, friends. You know, I I just really can't believe it's been nine years and almost 400 episodes. Your support has made this happen. Thank you. Thank you. You know, Mike worked on this uh, podcast for all by himself for years. Then when I retired, I came on board and I helped a a little. (laughs) Thank you for being a part of this journey with us. Thank you for sharing our mission and being part of the Space Rocket History Podcast team. And thank you very much for your financial and moral support over the years. We surely would not have been able to do this without your help. Okay, Mrs. SRH is obviously makes more than a little contribution. She is very helpful. She does a lot of things around here that are not seen, and I'll tell you how much I do appreciate that right now. She is a wonderful person, and she does a good job. So, with, with no further ado, let's get on to the Tang Ceremony. I have my water in a glass here. It is a glass half full. Mrs. SRH has a mug, and uh, it's about half full, so we gotta, we don't want to get too concentrated a Tang here. So we're gonna, <laughs> we don't want too many spoonfuls of it. Let's op- open her up here. This is in the plastic container all right dip dip i'm gonna dip mine put it in here now you at home go ahead and get yours dip it in this a that's a big spoon there all right one you think i need another one (laughs) yes all right it's kind of clumped together somebody stuck a wet those boys have stuck a wet spoon in i know who it was I know who did that. You do? Yes, grandson number four is that one who did that. Uh. <laughs> I think. Because he likes Tang better than the rest of them. Oh, gosh, that's right. Stir it up. All right, I got mine stirred. I hope it's stirred. Now, you at home, raise your glasses. We'll toast here. We'll take a big swig of Tang. Not sure I got my concentration right on that. (laughs) Boy, that's tangy. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, everyone, for being here. And we, we appreciate it so much. And hopefully we can continue a few more years. For those interested in the house progress... Uh, There's still been nothing done about the leak in the 12-foot-long trench in the basement floor. The gas fireplace ceramic is still broken, but they did install the gas line to it, and they did install the gas logs. 
The exterior vinyl siding is now complete. They installed the final metal pole support in the basement. They still have not trimmed around one of the front windows and they have to retrim around the new window they put in in the bedroom. The interior basement door was installed, but the coat closet door was not. The carpet is still not installed. The sheetrock is still not repaired where they replaced the shower. The final electrical is complete except for a missing light in the kitchen and for some reason the basement lights stopped working. The HVAC is connected and working. Uh, they just uh, forgot to put on two of the registers that go on the ends of the vents. The plumbing is complete except connecting to the well and they're missing one toilet. They ran the underground PVC to the well. Now they are, make sure you understand, they're connecting to an existing well that we are currently using, so that well has to remain on. So they, when they installed the house water pipe, they cut the power line to the well. The power line they cut was actually sticking up above ground. You could see the cut wire, or at least half of it. They didn't have a problem with that and covered their trench back up with dirt and took their machine and left. Well, when we discovered the water was off, we went to check the well and it was immediately obvious by the wire sticking out of the ground that they had cut it. So we got them back out there, and they, of course, assured us there was no way they could have cut it. Then I had to prove to them that they cut it. But they did not want to dig the other end of the wire up and splice it back together because they would have to use a shovel to do that. Instead, they thought it was smarter to get a trencher back out there and trench out the power line to the power panel. Now, I knew if they did that, they were going to cut something else. They were going to cut another pipe underground already or another line underground because this is a hundred-year-old farm we have here and there's wires running all over the place under the ground and pipes too. So I didn't want them to do that. And also, they would have to cut right through the driveway to do that. So... I didn't want them to do that. So uh, someone higher up in the company told them they had to dig it up using a shovel, and they found the wire they were looking for pretty quickly and called their electrician to splice it back together. And that solved that problem, although it took quite some time, most of the day, to, to get that covered. Then we had the biggest showstopper of them all. The contractor told me they couldn't get my garage door in and wanted me to buy one myself and they would give me an allowance of $1,322. The cheapest garage door we could find was $2,850. 
The contractor said he could only give me 1322 which is less than half of what it cost. My daughters were so anxious to get into their houses that they took that deal and paid the extra money to get someone else to install. Strangely enough, that person, the people, they got two different, they got two different vendors to install theirs, and one daughter got theirs installed in 10 days. 10 days installed, and the other one took about 13 days. Now, I decided not to take that deal because it seemed like a scam to me. Garage doors have become more scarce, and the price has gone up. So I think the contractor was trying to get me to cover the price increase in garage doors. I told the contractor he should have ordered it sooner if he couldn't get it in. He said he ordered it when they started the house. Now, they started the house almost nine months ago. So he's telling me he couldn't get a garage door in in nine months. But my daughters got both of theirs installed in less than two weeks. Now, something's wrong with that story. So, the contractor said he w- we would have to delay getting into the house until we got the garage door. So we couldn't move in. So, uh, I have a meeting with the contractor's boss on Friday. Hopefully we can get this resolved because I believe there is a scam afoot. And this is kind of the second time they've tried a maneuver like this on me. The first was with the uh, small shower they put in. And you may recall that they told me there was not a, a shower the size that we ordered in the entire United States until we went online and found one. So, we are definitely not going to meet our settlement date of March the 4th. And at this point... I don't know what's going to happen. Okay, over the past two weeks, we had a few contributions. Stefan S. from Germany donated at the Orion level and earned a Nova emoji. John W. sent in another donation and moved to the Salyut Skylab level with rocket emoji. Eric P. from Illinois donated at the Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. Christian S. from Germany donated at the Vostok level. Christoph C. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. And Chris pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 251 with a goal of 300 by the end of 2022. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 291 with an overall goal of 500 for the year. So if you're enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. The winner of the drawing will get the choice of a SRH magnet, stickers, or a NASA sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Hank Roberts, 
Hank Roberts, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 291 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Gunter's Space Page, Encyclopedia Britannica, The Pictorial History of World Spacecraft by Bill Yin, Rockets and Missiles by Bill Gunston, The Encyclopedia of U.S. Spacecraft by Bill Yin, Space Launch Now, the website, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 384 posted by March 10th, 2022. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.